0: Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Again, I welcome those joining on live stream. Welcome this morning to our service 1 Kings chapter 8, if you're visiting with us, uh, glad that you're here, glad that you're joining us today. Uh, Hope that you are just able to feel at home and that this is a part of your family. We invite you and encourage that. 1 Kings chapter 8, and we just finished the song, Here I Am to Worship, Here I Am to Bow Down. And I want to ask the question, what is Worship, exactly. Now, you don't have to speak out loud. I know sometimes I solicit, you can just yell yell it out. But but I do want you to think about that for a moment before I go any further. What exactly is worship? We talk about it in church. Uh, It's an expression that is uh, uh, an expression used for the crown, your worship. But what exactly is worship? It's tossed around. That word is used. Very, almost frivolously. What's worship? And today, I'm, I'm going to take a bit of time because I believe that if, in in regard to my understanding, or my improper understanding of what worship is, is a direct link to link to my experience with God. A lack of experience could be a lack of understanding. Could be a lack of something that we're just. We, we're not getting or I don't understand but if I do understand it and I'm able to then grow from that understanding of what that implies maybe it will take me into a whole new world and I trust that that will be the case so 1st Kings chapter 8 I'm going to come back to that text but if you were to read that whole section which we just don't have time chapter if you were to go back to chapter 5 chapter 6 chapter 7 then in chapter 8 it tells the whole story I'm just going to, in about three minutes, try to tell you what's happening in 5, 6, 7, and then into our text today, chapter 8. The guy's name is Solomon. Solomon is the son of who? David. David. David was probably, arguably, maybe the greatest king Israel has ever known, the greatest leader Israel has ever known. The city of Jerusalem is still referred to today as the city of David, Mount Zion, it's, it still refers back to the great King David. Now, David's beginning came up out of very humble means. David came to the place that he not only encompassed uh, the, the land that we now know as Israel, but they were the largest kingdom of the day. And in that day, David, of course, was a man of, of worship. You can't but go through the book of Psalms, and as you go through the book of Psalms, you will see a lot of the hymns that came from David. They're not all hymns from David, but there are a number of them. And if you have a Bible, you'll have to see at the beginning a, a Psalm of David, a Song of David, a Psalm of David. Many of them are. And you get an idea about this guy, David. You can read of David in in the end of Samuel in the early part of Kings. you, You get a picture of David. But I don't want to spend time talking about David. I want to talk about his son here, Solomon. To say Solomon was born with the silver spoon in his mouth is probably an understatement. Solomon did demonstrate the same humility that his dad, his father David, demonstrated on the throne. David was considered a humble man. And when Solomon was given the throne, when David turned it over and there was the great inauguration of the new king, Solomon, his son, he began in very humble ways. Solomon, when he began the leadership in Israel, he chose chose God, he chose worship, he chose relationship with God over simply wealth. He wanted God. There's a humility there. You read through the Proverbs. You get an idea of his early writings. Things change in his life. And years after heaven been at that high level of professionalism, you see his heart change. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. That's for another day. So here's Solomon. Solomon's on the throne. Solomon is building a place where God can dwell among his people on a permanent basis. Up until now, the dwelling place was in a tent called a tabernacle. Then it was called the tent of David. And it was mobile. You could move it around. And that's where the Holy of Holies was, where the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, God chose to dwell at that place and move around. But God spoke to David that he would dwell in one place. And David had declared that it would be in what now we know as the city of Jerusalem. If you were to go there today, you've seen pictures of the Dome of the Rock. Uh, Now, that is not a Jewish building, but at the Dome of the Rock is where the establishment of the temple was built. It's where the dome now stands. And it's there that David knew there would be a permanent dwelling place called the temple, but David wasn't allowed to build it, but he got a lot ready. He spent years getting things ready. And then he passed it off to his son Solomon. Solomon came in, and Solomon began to prepare to move into the temple. And, and this was a place of worship. Now, I'm leading somewhere. I think probably if we were to understand worship, we need to understand one of the greatest moments of worship the Bible talks about. And it's 1 Kings chapter 8. So Solomon begins to build the temple. Much had already been prepared. It would take him seven years. Listen to this. Seven years and he would conscript about 100,000 people in the building of this temple. Those numbers stagger me. He would conscript about 100,000 people in the building of this temple. He would bring in lumber that would come from far away countries. He would build ships so that he could transport the lumber for the temple. Crazy. I mean, they didn't have trains, so they came by ship. They mined minerals, precious stones, silver and gold, was put into that temple that no other building had ever in in that world, the ancient world had ever known, that began to be prepared for this opulent place of worship. Solomon was at the head of this whole plan. When The temple was being constructed with 100,000 workers. And the temple's not all that huge. I mean, the building is not that big. You take the size of this building here. It's, it's not bigger than this building. We're not talking a massive, massive building. But the effort put into it was a seven-year project. The pillars that they built were splendid. The gold that was overlaid was splendid, the marble, the exquisite details, the steps leading up to the entry, the outer courtyard, they call later the women's courtyard, and then the inner courts, and then the holy of holies. And he built the cherubim. They would be the angelic host with their wings, and it talks of the spread of their wings, as they would point towards where the dwelling place of God was would dwell as he says, I've chosen to dwell among you in this place. All of this with great sacrifice. The amount of sacrifice that took place there, the cost of materials. One of my commentators, when I looked at it, estimates if that temple were constructed today with what David had prepared, seven years of Solomon, 100,000 laborers for seven years, it would equal four trillion dollars. No small task. No small task. And then as they came to the week of the inauguration, before they would bring in the great ark of the covenant, they began to bring sacrifice on the altars and offer sacrifice to God. How much sacrifice? Oh, my goodness. This boggles my mind. 22,000 cattle were slaughtered. 120,000 little lambs were slaughtered for the dedication of the temple. And it would go on past the dedication, the days that would follow, the celebration. People from all lands came to the mount to see the dedication. And then they learned the lesson from dad David who had carried the ark wrongly. And so Solomon knew not to carry it on carts, but to carry it how? On the shoulders. God chose to dwell among us, not cows. And so on the shoulders, the poles, as the priests carried in, and it was a ceremony, they came in. You read of this in 1 Kings, in the first few chapters. And they came in with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of pure gold. And inside you had the tablets, you had the the rod of Aaron, And the man of that was back at the time of Moses. And they would bring in this this ark and they would walk up the steps of the great temple. And they would make their way through the outer courts through the inner courts. And they would go into the Holy of Holies. And the priest very carefully would set down the ark of the covenant. And they would back away from it. They would back away from it. And then we pick the story up here. And this is where we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, backed out, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priest could not perform their service. They couldn't perform their duties. Because of this cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Wouldn't that have been something? A cloud ascended upon, similar to the cloud that was Moses when he went up on the Mount Sinai. And he came down. And the cloud, a cloud, had to veil him the glory of the Lord. Same cloud that when Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the cloud came. The glory of the Lord came. And the cloud came upon them. Laurie and I, about a number of years ago, we were with the family down south, we stayed with them a few days and they talked about a conference they went to in South Carolina or North Carolina, somewhere in the Carolinas. And they were worshiping. And they were worshiping and it was, it was two days of non-stop worship. They went around the clock in this worship. That would have been, they went through bands. It wasn't the same band worship team. You don't have to fear that we're going to do that one day. They went through multiple bands of worship and they just around the clock worship, worship, worship. Came into the second day and the couple told us it with tears, trembling. They told us, they said, there came a point in the second day where a cloud came into that building. You would have thought, okay, something's smoking, you know. And it's not like, you know how we, we do mists now. We, we, have, we, we can do it. We get the fog machines. But they didn't have that then. It wasn't fog machines. It wasn't an amplifier blowing up. It wasn't overdoing over the circuits. It, it, they said there was, there's, it came across and it came across the platform. And they said everybody stopped. They stopped. And they said the glory of the Lord was so rich. And as they told us, they were just bawling. They were just tears. And they said, we can't describe what took place in the next few minutes. As we experienced what they experienced, there was something a touch of that. And the glory of the Lord ascended. And here, read it. I'm going to read it again. It says, the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So here's the question. Was God pleased? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I'm going to go out and live. Yes. I mean if he wasn't pleased it would have been a different turnout here okay you know that he was pleased with what happened here the worship had been accepted and so much so just a few days later solomon would kneel in first kings chapter 8:27 solomon the great king would kneel before the lord and he would say but will god really dwell on the earth the heavens even the highest heavens cannot contain you How much less this temple, $4 trillion worth, this temple. How much less we can't contain you. We can't even begin to contain you. What a story. So now you understand why I want us to go there this morning. When we talk about, do I understand worship? I don't know if I'll ever understand worship. I don't know if we'll ever get our our arms around this thing. But maybe we can try. Maybe we can just ask God, God, would you open up the veil and help us to understand a bit more about worship? Because it could maybe possibly transform our lives if we could, if you would. Well, it comes down to this place, worship. I see three things that stand out in this story of 1 Kings 5, 6, 7, and 8. I want to just briefly mention these three things that I believe contributed to the glory coming that day. Because my heart is your heart. Do you desire God's glory? Do you hunger for His glory? And I don't mean a cloud. We can go up into the sky and get a cloud. I'm talking about His glory. Where He would demonstrate Himself in my midst. Oh, and me not die because of it. You The know, Bible says hills melt, melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. So I don't want to melt like wax. So if he's coming, I want to continue to live and talk about it afterward. Okay? You know what I'm saying. So what will it take for his glory? For his glory to be revealed? I see three things that come out of this story in 1 Kings chapter 8. Number one, there was a material declaration of worth. A material declaration of worth is made in the enormous investment the structure represents. All of it being direct result of offerings, Brought by devoted worshipers of the Lord. There was a material exchange. Secondly, I see that on that occasion. There was a spiritual declaration as well. A spiritual declaration of worth. Is seen in the overwhelming number of sacrifices. Offered that day. As they sanctified this new house to God. All the animals were slain. And thirdly. I see here a conceptual grasp. Grasp. Of God's worth. And it's evident when you continue to read the rest of chapter 8. Again, we don't have the time to do it. But Solomon will roll into a number of prayers on this dedication day. And if you read his prayers slowly, meditatively. Oh, they're, they're beautiful prayers. You will see as you read through, he is trying to describe the grandeur of the God he worships. The grandeur of God. So I come back to our question this morning. Is the worship I bring, is the worship you bring before God worthy to be given to Almighty God? Because I'm going to suggest there is unworthy worship. And unworthy worship is not accepted. There is such a thing as unworthy worship. So let's just take a moment and talk about it. One of the postures of worship is I'm going to call the glib, inappropriate, over-casual. And it's where he's just buddy. He's brought down to be reduced to something I feel I can better handle and control. Now, really, when you think about it, if he is truly God, the Creator of all things, the Maker of all things, if he is the God of the universe, all-powerful, all present, all all to be glorified and worshiped, if he is all those things, then the whole concept of reducing him is kind of weird. How can I reduce God? Yeah, sometimes in there's an attempt to worship in my style, and so there can be the, I'm going to call it the inappropriate, the inappropriate casualness, the inappropriate uh, glib response, just uh, half-hearted, and it's one of the things that really spoke to me a number of years ago, and it was when a place of, of worship that I really felt in, in my life, and I know Lori has applied it to her as well, but in my life, I realized that that I needed to reserve certain postures and certain vocabulary to God and God alone. Or else I had nothing left to give them that was elevated. So I've, I've shared this with the congregation before. And there was just something. Um, first of all, when I talk about when I love things, I, I don't use the expression, you know, I, re- I really love that car. I won't use that expression. I really like it, maybe. Because I try to, here's my expression, I will only love that which will love me back. So I can like it, I can enjoy it, I can use it, it's amazing. But I want to love only that which loves me back. And so there's people I love because they love back. But I want to also use that as an expression of my love. When I say, I love you, Lord, I don't want it to be up there with loving a hamburger too. You know what I'm saying? I want it separate. I want to keep that language between him and I. So I've purposed to do that in my own life. The other thing is I also don't use the word awesome. And the word awesome, I've reserved the word awesome to God. Uh, I just, because I don't know of a better word to try to describe him. Hey, holy, that's a good word. So I don't use, you know, holy smokes. I, no, I don't do any of that. I reserve all the things to try to keep it to him. But awesome is one of those words as well. So, you know, it, it wasn't an awesome roller coaster. It was a spooky roller coaster. But awesome is for him. And so nothing else gets the word awesome. What I've tried to do is I've tried to reserve some vocabulary that only greatest of majesty can have. And I put that as a challenge. I also seldom will use the word wonderful because I also find that's full of wonder. And could anything be more full of wonder than him? And so I've tried to reserve that for him. And so there are certain things I've just tried to pull back so I can bring something worthy of something beyond that I can see or touch in this world. So there can be the glib. They just kind of roll in, roll out, sit in the lap of daddy. And and I really believe he is my Papa God. I talk to him as my dad. I firmly believe that. But he is more than just that. He's God. He's more than just the creator. He's him who holds my life in his hands this very moment. And my next breath came from him. He sustains life. He is the giver of all life. The redeemer of that which has been lost. He is so much more than just a pet god. A genie in a, in a, in a box. He's more than that. So there's that aspect. There's that aspect of, of when it comes to, is the worship you bring worthy to be given to Almighty God? There can be the contemporary tendency towards the inappropriate casual. But on the flip side of that, which that is very shallow. On the flip side of that is pride. That which we put posture towards, and that is nothing more than pride. And pride is not superior to shallowness any day. So one is not better than the other. One extreme to the other extreme, where you, with pride, bring pompousness, and we see that in the days of Jesus, that doesn't impress God. It doesn't impress Him at all. Worship. The word worship comes from the old English word, worthsip. Which means to ascribe worth, to pay homage, to reverence, or to venerate. To ascribe worth. To ascribe worth. So how shall we ascribe worth? So again, the topic here today, is he altogether worthy? Now worship comes from the word worthy. Worthy, drop the Y, is the word worth. So worship is what you ascribe worth to. So How much is he worth? Because that is our worship. Worship is not because I sang a song. Worship is not because I said I worship you. That doesn't mean anything. It comes out of an understanding and then a posture that flows out of what is he worth to me? Are you following? What's he worth? Now, to understand and to get that question properly answered is going to revolutionize or, or... Bring absolutely no life to the person who would worship Him or not worship Him. So, how shall we worship? Three things. Number one, I want to talk about the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. And this speaks of His beyondness. He's beyond. He's transcendent. God is beyond here. He's beyond the physical. He's beyond the five senses I have. Though God is present everywhere, He is also beyond all our worlds. He, who created all things, is separate from and exists beyond His creation. It's an error to believe that God is a part of His creation. That somehow He created Himself. Somehow He Himself evolved, maybe. However, it is also an error to believe that God remains separate from us. For the Bible says God delights to dwell among his people. So he is beyond these worlds. Yet he chooses and delights to interact with his creation. Hmm. God attributes the, the things of who he is, he's an interactive God. Now, we put that up against deities in the world. He's our. Jehovah God, Elohim, is interactive with us. That's why it's appropriate on Sunday, during times where we're worshiping, it's not uncommon for the song leader to remind us what it is we're actually singing. It's not wrong to do that at times. It's not wrong to just point out in a particular song, did you just see the words? Did you understand the words we just sang? Because he is holy, he's beyond, he's great, he's majestic, he's He's above and beyond. And then other songs, it's like he dwells among us. He is with us. He loves me. He's my helper, my guide, my comforter. And we sing both. And it's okay as we try to fathom he is here, and yet he is a great and awesome holy God. We sing of those things. Remember somebody telling me years ago that Christians never more lie than when they sing their songs of worship. And I've been conscious of that. The songs I sing, do I really mean it? Or are they just songs sung? Because sometimes we're singing songs that we have no plans to ever do. When it talks of some commitments we make through our songs. Sometimes we point out in the songs things about who he is. And when we do this, it brings expression to the words about to be sung. So when we sing them, it's like, oh, now, yes, Lord, I now Agree with those words. Living worship can set aflame when sparked with understanding the attributes with God can set aflame your faith. It just bursts into fire when it becomes living worship. Where we might say, let us kneel to worship or let us clap, let us shout, let us lift our hands. And when an exhortation is made, there's an an explosion of something takes place in my heart when I do it. The remembrance of who God is. I'm just, I just put up here for you to see some of the things that I was thinking this week when I began to think of when I began to worship Him. He's the Almighty, the self-sufficient One. He's entirely holy, three in one. The merciful, righteous, and just One. All-knowing, all-wise. He's the essence and fountain of love. He's the Creator and the Lord of hosts. The absolute and changeless One. The true faithful one. He has chosen to love us. He has sought to redeem us. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the only wise savior, born of a virgin, who lived sinlessly, taught truthfully, died vicariously for me and you. Whose blood and death are ransom price for me and you. He is the son of God risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. He is poured out for me and you through His Spirit. Therefore, let God be praised. We worship you. He's the transcendent God. He transcends all things. He's beyond all things. So, how is He worthy? He is worthy when I embrace that He is beyond all things. His greatness, His holiness, His awesomeness. It really brings you to the place you don't want to just casually just undermine Him too much. He is greatly to be praised, greatly to be feared. He is a great God. But let's, it's not enough to stop there. The next one I'm going to call the, our transaction, our transaction with God. You see, worthy worship, we're talking how is. Worship worthy. Worthy worship begins with its focus on the greatness of God. We just talked about that. His goodness. But there needs to be a critical juncture at which worship requires a transaction. It's not enough to mentally acclaim Him as great. Worship now requires you to do something. You are tracking here? It requires me to now do something. His greatness demands a response. Not just enough to acknowledge... His greatness. But now I need to do something. It's called a transaction. It's called a sacrifice. It's called an offering. There is no such thing as worship without there being something tangible brought from man's side. So when you were to go to visit the queen, you don't go go empty-handed. You bring something to the queen. You bring a gift. Not that she doesn't have thousands of them. You still bring a gift. Why? She's majesty. You need to bring a transaction. If she is majesty, it requires something from me to give. I give you something. There's a transaction that takes place. When you stand before that which is worthy, I give because of your worthiness. Now God does not require payments to bless you. His gifts cannot be bought by you or I. Worship can become a joy to our souls, healing to our hearts, peace to our mind. And yet still, we must recognize we've made maybe no definitive investment ourselves. He will do all those things because He is God, because of who He is. But the point is this. If worshipers are not brought to an understanding of our responsibility of giving, then you will discover the power of worship die right before you. And there will be no power in it. It will be mundane in people's lives. And I'm going to suggest in many lives today, maybe this morning, worship has become mundane to you. And it will die right before you. If there hasn't been that significant offering of me to him, a transaction on my behalf to him, if all I ever do is think about his goodness, but it doesn't somehow stir me to the core to do something about it, it dies right there. It dies. Solomon's temple reminds us of this truth. There was a material investment. The temple was built on a transaction, a business transaction, with Solomon's dad at the forefront. And this is an amazing part of the story. Of, of If you remember the story of, of David, and there was a curse upon the land, and people were dying, and the Bible talks about the death angel had moved upon the land. And there were people dying because there had been a turning away and an assault against the living God. And God stopped the death angel. Bible stories talked. Stop the death angel. right. It's found in 2 Samuel, if you want to read the whole story. 2 Samuel 24. The death angel was on the threshing floor of Urana. There was a barn. And there was a threshing floor. And the death angel, and God said, stop. And so he stopped him. The death angels just stood there. And David was there, King David. And David quickly moved upon the scene. He was recognizing transaction, transaction. Worship is worthy of a transaction. So he went to Urona and he said, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want this place right here. I'm going to build an altar before God. And Urana says, it's yours. You take it. Just take it. Remember what David said? 2 Samuel 24. David says, that which costs me nothing is not real worship. I will pay full price for this threshing floor. David made a significant statement. If it doesn't cost me anything, it's really not worship. You gave it. It's worship from you. But if I'm going to give worship, it has to cost me something too. If it cost me nothing, it hasn't been real worship. And so David would full price buy the threshing floor. And there he would build this massive altar. And he would sacrifice the lambs on this altar. Now, by the way, BTW, by the way, that very threshing floor happened to be the place, roll it back, hundreds of years before where Abraham on Mount Moriah took his son, Genesis 22, took his son up Mount Moriah to sacrifice before God. Remember that story? He took his son up there. When he raised the knife, God said, stop. stop! You've proven to me that you have given the greatest thing that you could give in worship. You have transitioned. You have made a a transaction, and held back, and a lamb was slain. That was exactly that. that was Arana's floor, right there. David bought it. David said, I'm buying this right here. And he built an altar, which, interestingly enough, is where the temple would be built. Right there on that threshing floor is when we talked about First Kings chapter 8, they brought all that stuff, and they built this great temple, and right where that, altar was is where they set the Ark of the Covenant, right upon that altar. And if you go to Jerusalem today, Lori and I were privileged. The first year we weren't allowed in. I don't think you're allowed in now. Inside the dome where this is, there's a place. You go downstairs, and there's a place. There's a rock. And at that rock, they say, that's the place. That's the place where Isaac was with Abraham. That's the place where David built the altar. That's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was would rest, that's the place where the mercy of God is, right there. And, and, and it was a, a sacred moment. And we were surrounded with some people that were, were not Christians, and, and they were making glib of the moment, but not, not us. It was like, ugh. here it is in person. We beheld it with our physical eyes, the place that hundreds of years ago was this most amazing transmission, trans, transition of worship before God. It's not real worship if it does not cost me something. I wonder if sometimes we too many times live out relatively unsacrificial lifestyles when it comes to our term of worship. Sometimes we have a tendency like Cain and Abel. We have a tendency like Cain that while we give out of obedience, we demand God to receive our offering on our terms. God, here's what I'm going to give today, and it's on my terms. Instead of giving God what he's asked for on his terms. And so therefore we've... We've taken worship off the throne, and we've made it unworthy for an unworthy God. In addition, not only was there material, but in addition, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present, finish it for me, your bodies, a living sacrifice. The second part is not simply the material, not simply what I can give, my material, but my body as a living sacrifice. This, is, this includes my body as a vessel of honor to the king. Transaction of worship is a physical, of my physical body. My physical body. I became very aware that although I find it extremely comfortable to stand with my hands in my pocket, and I do when I'm talking to you, I'm often, you know, sometimes, Laurie, somebody come up, get your hands out of your pocket, right? I just find that really comfortable. Or I also find it very comfortable, personally, because I find my shoulders, my arms heavy you know just i'll do that it takes the weight off my shoulders i'm not like fed up with anybody so i know somebody's probably going to tease me next time i do this but i'm not fed up with anybody i'm just i'm just resting my arms they're heavy okay but i'm very conscious that when i bring my worship before him i don't do that i'm very conscious of that i'm very conscious that when i was a child and we would in school we would have the anthem oh canada you stood beside your desk you don't put your hands in your pockets and you don't fold your arms. You sing O Canada with your hands down to the side. You stand on guard. I stand on guard. And to this day, we still... A couple of weeks ago, we sang O Canada when we had the appreciation service. And still, the expression, I stand on guard. I don't sit. I don't lay down. I don't recline. I, I stand, stand for the anthem. And then back in the day when we used to God save our queen, you would also stand... And you didn't sit, you would stand. And whenever majesty comes in, you would stand. We still operate that way as a commonwealth nation. If you go to court and his honor comes in, what do they ask you to do? Would everyone stand? Why? Because he represents the, th- the crown. He represents the throne. When our mayor comes in, when, when somebody who is of his worship comes in, our PM, our MPP, um, when, come in, we stand. We stand. Because it represents the throne. It represents the crown. And so we give honor to that. We stand. And there's an expression of that. It's a physical expression. And I've come to appreciate that maybe we've lost some of the awe to that. But the physical expression, there's, it, it's not lost on God, though. It's not lost on God. When I take a little effort to give some physical expression. Now, we could take it to the extreme. We could take it to the extreme. Absolutely. But sometimes we... Don't maybe bring worthiness in our physical expression of worship. Maybe sometimes we back away from such a thing. So, um, you know, I'm, let's, I'm almost done here. This doesn't mark that I'm done, but I'm almost done. So let's do something here this morning. Let's, I think you'll find this informative. I'm going to invite you. Would you join me in standing? And if those watching live stream, I invite you to do it too. Just stand. Okay. We just talked about standing. Now, 50 years ago, some of you remember going to church 50 years ago? Um, you remember you'd, you'd stand for some, you'd sit for some, stand for some, sit for some. And that was okay, nothing wrong with that. I have found that it just the culture has changed. We will often stand and we start into our worship time. And we give full permission if you get tired. For, for pity's sake, sit down and rest. And when you feel rested, if you want, you can stand again. It's Okay. There's nothing holy in standing alone. But sometimes I need to stand. I need to stand because I am bringing worth to my worship. You following? Okay, well, uh, I don't know when you first came into uh, maybe our church or a uh, a Spirit filled church or a Pentecostal church. First time you saw people in church raise their hands. Do you, you remember that? And you thought, they're crazy. What are they doing? They're like a cult. you know. They're raising their hands. What are they doing? What, what are they raising their hands to? And, and then after a while, you maybe became used to it. They're raising your hands. Some here, I'm going to suggest, some have never raised your hands in worship. I remember the early times of me raising my hands, and I thought it was awkward. It was like, you know, I kind of went up part mask and just like, yeah, yeah, you know. And I've heard people say, if you don't get both hands up high, it's not real worship. And I don't believe that for a second. Because worship comes first from your heart. But then when it begins to make a transaction in my physical body, there is an appropriateness. Okay, just a few days ago, our Canadian soccer team uh, had an amazing goal. I can't remember the guy's name, but that was an amazing goal. I watched it on a replay. It was an amazing goal. And everybody in the stands were up there with their hands pretty much raised. Right? And they were shouting and dancing and high-fying and they were their hands were raised not in worship I'm going to say but their hands were raised they were they were demonstrating something and sometimes in worship there's a picture of a demonstration to God with and the bible talks about with lifted hands worship him with lifted hands it's appropriate to do that of so I invite you let's do that can you just lift your hands just for a moment just lift your hands just for a moment as we worship him is he worthy of my transaction of worship. Okay, go ahead. Place your hands down. Don't sit down yet. Keep up. Um, applause. Applause. Now, the same game. They were clapping. They were rooting. They were hollering. An applause. And the other thing of applause, and the Bible talks about it, not only is, you know, worthy. I bring worth, you know, great, great goal. You know, great worth. But, but. It's also, clapping is also seen as a military. Back in the day, they would clap as they go to war. They'd begin to clap. <laughs> Extremely intimidating if you got 100,000 coming towards you clapping like that. Really intimidating. And it was like the enemy is defeated. And they would clap. It's defeated. The enemy is defeated. And they would, they would clap as they begin to go in. And it's just <laughs> intimidating. And there's times where we just need clap and honor to him, but not just for what he does. Sometimes you just clap, enemy, you're defeated. You're defeated in my life, I declare. So why don't you just go ahead? Let's express it to clap. Go ahead. All right. Okay. Now, not to be undone, shouting. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. Shout to the Lord. Now, another thing of war, it was not only a victory, shouting, woohoo. It was also you begin to shout as you went to battle. My kids took uh, Taiwan Do. And they were taught that when you kick or punch, that there comes a verbal. It does a couple of things. It gives you added strength. To me, I'd be, you know, I don't know, if, but maybe. It gives you added strength, just that energy as you go into that kick or whatever. But it also scares the jihibis out of the person you're coming at. And, and you know, it does like a 2 found thing. And the shout, the shout. And there's times just to shout to the Lord, to lift my voice, to shout to the Lord. Now, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to do that. But let's do the last one. It talks about kneeling before we do that. Kneeling before Him. Another expression that God says, He invites, worship me in kneeling. Worship me. And this is bringing, what are we talking about? Bringing worth to worship. The kneeling means nothing all of its own. But when you kneel in honor of worth to Him, it means a lot. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you If you can. If you can't kneel, that's okay. Then just invite you just to sit down and do this. But if you can kneel in just a moment. And I want you to kneel. What we're going to do, we're going to kneel. And we're going to invite you just for about, I'm going to time it for maybe about 10 seconds. Just close your eyes. And I want you just to, not out loud, just in your heart, whisper to the Lord, you love Him. With sincerity, you love Him. And just in silence, just whisper to the Lord. So we're going to kneel. Take about 10 seconds, and in that 10 seconds, don't look around. Just whisper to the Lord you love him. And then I'll ask you to come back up. Okay, can we do that? Let's try that. Go ahead. Thank you. You may stand. You may be seated, actually. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, I'm going to ask something. How many of you felt something when you were kneeling and you said that to the Lord? How many felt something? Okay, a number of you did. You don't have to put your hand up if you didn't. A number of you did. It's okay if you didn't. Here's the point. When it comes to bringing worship, there needs to be a transaction. Materially, if I, if I withhold what represents me financially, then I withhold worship based on my demands of Him. But also, if I withhold physically from Him, then I have reduced His worthiness to be worshipped. And part of my expression, when I lift my hands, when I show, when I clap my hands, when I kneel or stand before Him, is not simply to change position. It is an act of expressing worthiness to God. And I thought we'd have a little fun this morning going through that. But it is... It can be very life-changing when you actually do this. What took place in 1 Kings chapter 8? There was a transaction that took place. And God was pleased and his glory came. Again, remember, we're trying. God, what will it take for your glory to come? It will take the worthiness of worship to bring his glory. Now, the last one, we talked about the, uh, he is transcendent beyond the transaction. Is, I have to bring something material and I bring something of bodily form when I worship him. But lastly, the transformation. Because there's a transformation when it comes to worship. The transformation before God. When he touches me, he transforms me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. When he in worship begins to demonstrate himself, there will be victory, there will be freedom. There will be joy. There will be passion. There will be something take place of a transformation in you. He transforms us. He lifts us out of that and brings us to life and life everlasting. He begins to change our hearts. There's a chorus that I continue to sing to this day. We're not going to sing it this morning, but the chorus goes like this. When I look into your holiness, when I gaze into your loveliness, When all things that surround me become shadow in the light of you. When I found the joy of reaching your heart. When my will becomes enthralled in your love. When all things that surround me become shadow in the light of you. I worship you. There's a a transformation taking place. When these things become reformed in the light of Him, worship, worthiness of Him comes forth. I worship you. And then expect His glory to come down. Expect His glory to pierce your heart and your soul. Expect His glory to bring transformation to us, no longer our ways, our selfishness, our pride, our will, our pursuits get transformed. He invites us into that place of his glory. The worthiness of worship. Is he altogether worthy? Is he altogether worthy? Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.